On today's episode of the Driving Improvement Podcast, my guest is Pete Strickland, who spent over 25 years as a basketball coach in the NCAA and is the former head coach of the Irish national team. After a stellar playing career at DeMatha Catholic High School under legendary coach Morgan Wooten, he played at the University of Pittsburgh and was a three-year starter and two-year team captain. Strickland then worked his way up through the coaching ranks, highlighted by being named Big South Conference Coach of the Year in 2000 at Coastal Carolina University. His motivational and energetic style have translated to a successful speaking career, helping coaches and business leaders get the most out of their teams. In this episode, we examine the lessons learned from a coaching legend, how motivation needs to come from within, and what it's like to cross the Atlantic to bring a group of players together. All that and more on the Driving Improvement Podcast with Mark Russo right now. Well, welcome in, everyone, to the Driving Improvement Podcast, and I'm really excited today to have a uh, DeMatha brother on, uh, Coach Pete Strickland. Coach Strickland, how are you, buddy? Good. I'm really good, Mark. Just thrilled to be with you. So um, how's how's your family doing, first off, through uh, all the craziness here of 2020? How's, uh, how's your family doing? So I've got a daughter. My wife's good, and she works at DeMatha. She teaches at DeMatha, so we keep our stag connection. Um, I've got a daughter in Brooklyn, so we say prayers for her every night. Um, that's <laughs> dense there, Mark. That's really dense. Um, got a son in Charleston, and that's he lives right in Charleston, and that's a little dense too. And then I got a son in Dupont Circle. <laughs> that's that's dense. So we got you know we got plenty of plenty of prayers on our prayer list, uh, but they're all pretty smart about it. Thank God, you know they're social distancing. Uh, at least they're not telling their mother and I anything different. Um, but they're doing good. Thanks for asking. You know, so far so good. Good, and maybe also not equally as important. But how's your golf game these days? <laughs> I am the most enthusiastic golfer in America. Absolutely, the most enthusiastic golfer in America. But I'm just not very good. Just not very good. But um, my kids, and that's what I need to talk to you about, Mark. When we get off air. My kids bought me a golf lesson for my for father's day so i i gotta i gotta get around to getting that to put that to use understood well i i do know somebody who can help you with that pete <laughs> i think we can get you straightened absolutely. out absolutely absolutely so we, when we we start yeah. here um you know I, and i know you love golf and we're going to sort of bring some of this back to that for for some of my players and any coaches who are listening but why was basketball your your thing your first love pete well, and this would apply to golf too, Mark. Um, you know, it got to be where, um, you know, I think in any team sport, you know, if you just practice hard when your team practices, whether it be for baseball or football or what have you, you know, you can be pretty good. But, you know, to really distance yourself in anything, you have to be able to go out and work on your game by yourself. You know, we say it in basketball all the time, players are made in the summer. Because in the winter, you know, coaches try to improve you and guards down at that end and big guys down at that end. And, you know, but essentially that's a 10 minute slice of practice, you know, in the winter as our job as coaches in basketball is to make the team better. And what I found is that basketball, um, man, I, I, you know, I couldn't wait to get better. And I really relished the time, even to this day that I spent on my own back in the 1800s when I became a player. <laughs> and, and, um, and, you know, that's true with golf. I was kidding with somebody the other day. I probably played golf 
and I love the social aspect of it. I love playing it with my friends. I love gambling a little bit for dimes and nickels. Um, but I probably played golf 1,864 times. And I think I practiced three times. Mm. And that's why my game is not, you know, where I'd love it to be. But I love playing and I still play. And I, you know, I always I need to practice more. But the thing about basketball, back to your original question, um, what really attracted me to basketball was I could really get out there on my own and get better. And then when the test came, whether it be the next summer league game or the next winter game, I was ready. And it was up to me. It was up to me to get better. And uh, that's probably what I liked a lot about basketball was just the, you know, the ability to see yourself improve, the, you know, the imagination it takes to be good at it. And uh, that would all come to fore as I was working out on my own. Well, and talking about getting good at it. So that, you know, that leads into obviously our, 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 our connection in terms of where we went to school and, you know, you ended up going to DeMatha and playing for a legend and Morgan Wooten. And was it, was it the school or was it the, the opportunity to play for Morgan that brought you to DeMatha? Um, it was really Morgan, you know, he was really the, um, the, the attraction and the, and the program that he had built. Uh, so I was like a lot of young males, Mark, you know, I, I was motivated by sports. Now, you know, in being motivated to get to DeMatha for basketball, um, I found out, wow, we got some, there's some really good teachers here and there's no girls here. So I don't need to try to make anybody laugh. And I got serious about school. And that was a great byproduct of going to DeMatha to play basketball. I ended up at a great school, you know, against my own better judgment. And, uh, you know, I ended up becoming pretty serious about school too. So that has fueled me ever since, uh, whether it be Father Damien's typing class or mm. the way I started to think because of Joe Carroll and Buck Offit in English classes. And I'm sure some all your listeners have those kind of influences throughout their lives. But yeah, great school. But that was just, I was just lucky that I went to place to play basketball and I ended up going to a great school too. I got, I got, I was fortunate. What was it, Pete? What was it like playing for Morgan? You know, I think as a, a first part of that question, and I, I'm, I'd love to hear any and all of it, but I'm very curious because I was there when he was there in my high school days. But I'm curious as a player, how did he deal with failure? Because we talk a lot in these podcasts to my students about how failure can actually be a good thing, that you can learn a lot from it. And I'm curious about how Coach Wooten dealt with failure and losses. Well, nobody dealt with it better, Mark. And you're you're so right. I mean, you know, Babe Ruth struck out a million times and he's the leading home run hitter. And, you know, we've all heard those adages, you know, um, because you know, the biggest thing is, and you've already pointed to it, is you have to learn from it. And I think Morgan went, Mark, I want to say like 35 years where he never lost two games in a row. Mm. You talk about <laughs> learning from failure. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, and it might have been longer than that. It might have been his whole career. But I just remember the latest iteration of that statistic. So it, nobody was better, Mark, at analyzing a loss than Morgan. So I remember Mike Bray and I were assistants together for my three years there at the math when I went back and worked with him. And, uh, you know, he would after after a game, we would always go out and get pizza and uh, at Lido's. And and mm -hmm. he would he would sit there and nobody was better at looking at what cost us the loss. And you know, not the players, and he wasn't critical that way. There was always a reason to look at 
a particular guy that maybe wasn't playing particularly well, but it was more about what didn't we do systematically to win that game. And then we would address it the next day we would address it, but it was never an imbalance. If we got beat by pressure, there was, we weren't going to spend two hours the next day against, you know, trying to beat pressure. You know, it was going to be just a little bit more of an emphasis, um, but we wouldn't, you know, again, overdo it because then you would at the detriment of your half court offense or your half court defense, you're working just against pressure. So it was always a, you know, just again, a little shift of emphasis, a couple tweaks here. Um, and, he, you know, and there was a determination, too, that we're not going to lose again and we're going to bounce back. And he would turn our guys around. You know, he would turn our guys around. And I remember him saying one time we lost a big game when I played for him. He said, well, we've got we're going to see him in another two weeks. And it was a league mm-hmm. foe. And he said, and we've got time to work on that. And we're a couple games coming up that we were probably going to win anyway. And he said, we got to just make sure in two weeks that they won the wrong game. Mm. And it, it was always just that nibble of motivation, you know, that nibble of looking forward, not looking back, uh, that enabled us to, you know, he would he would go to see, he would stick a little needle in our, you know, in our side to make sure we knew that we lost and we why we lost and how we could prevent it. But um, it wasn't overdone. It was more of a look forward. And um, that was his that was one of his strengths in terms of handling failure. I think it's an interesting point, too, when you talk about the practice, uh, Pete, because I had this discussion with uh, with my students about practice and about the quality of practice and how there's different types of it. And one of the things I've really gotten into is trying to, you know, in golf, we had this this terminology where it's block practice, where they're standing there and hitting one club and maybe working on a technique. And while that can be helpful at times, it's not as applicable when you get into a game situation. And then we try and get them to do also randomized practice or skill practice or getting out and playing the game. So not only, you know, your, your coaching style as well, but when you were playing and coaching with Morgan, how did he address working on fundamentals and maybe one thing sort of building block type stuff versus getting into something that was really applicable in game situations, especially if you're trying to come back from a loss. So great question. So, you know, nobody was better at the fundamentals and Morgan's strength, Mark, and if you had him in class, you know, this, um, there was nobody clear, you know, great clarity, great brevity. Uh, and both are connected, of course, being clear and being brief. Um, he was the greatest communicator I've ever been around. And he also was, not coincidentally, the best listener I've ever been around. Mm. And, you know, how do you become a great speaker? Well, you know, you listen to people and then you know what to say. And he would listen to his players in that he would watch us closely. He wasn't a guy that was constantly saying things, you know, during practice. He was watching and observing. Then when he said something, he was dead on. He was spot on. Um, so I back to your question, I, I think that's, he was he was just so good at being able to know what to do next because he understood what we had done wrong, even what he had done wrong prior, because he just paid attention. He was in the moment. I know that's an old, you know, kind of worn out principle about how players get better at any sport, but you got to be in the moment. You know, you can't be worried about your last mistake. You know, Morgan wouldn't let you do that. He wouldn't let you dwell on the mistake you made. It was always about what was next, the next play. And um, I think that's what made us so much better as a team and DeMatha so successful as a basketball, really, empire, because it was always about the next play. We, you know, we had to learn from what we'd gone through, but there wasn't going to be any dwelling on it. 
and think I've answered your question, but if I haven't, redirect me. No, no, that was that's great. And I guess I do have a question too for you. I was you know working on my notes a little bit here, and what kind of and I want I want to know what kind of a coach were you? What kind of coach was Morgan, and how would you compare that style? to say a Bobby Knight type style. And what do you think is more um, uh, efficient and useful with players? I mean, Bobby Knight, obviously known as very fiery, throwing his share of chairs, you know, I, I doubt Morgan ever did that. Uh, but talk to me about coaching styles so, and how yeah, Morgan no, influenced you and what you think. Well, he was so poised, you know, so poised. Uh, he wasn't, you know, there was an urgency about Morgan. And there was an intensity, but he was never out of control, never mm -hmm. out of control. Um, so you would hear the pointedness um, and, again, the urgency to get something done, to get the ball to the wing, to to block out, to to sprint back defensively, whatever that fundamental was going to be. And he was so well-versed in the fundamentals. Um, it's to such a degree, Mark, you'd say, God, does he know anything else? Don't jump to pass. Yeah, I've heard you say that, Morgan, when I played for him. I got it. but. You know, it's funny, I dealt with a young coach just recently, and he was like, he was, you know, kind of complaining, but just kind of sharing with me some of his complaints or some of his concern. He said, yeah, Pete, I told him. And I said, how many times? Hmm. You know, it's just, you, you know, repetition is the best teacher, and all the coaches do it. You have to tell, you know, it's just like I have children, you know, they're grown now, but, you know, my youngest, Connor, take the trash out. Connor, take the trash out. Connor, you know, whereas some coaches, the third time, they're screaming. Well, Morgan never screamed. He never screamed and he never cursed, but he would find a way to get his message across. Just it's not working this way. I'm going to have to try it a different way. Um, so I think the thing that comes to mind, the, the short answer to your question, Mark, would be nobody's nobody's ever more poised and in battle. And that's what you need. You're in a basketball game. You're playing the city title against, you know, there's 14,500 people in Coldfield House. You know, 90 percent of them are rooting for Dunbar. They got the ball and you look over and the guy at the sideline is as poised as a cucumber. And you're going to be poised. You're going to be poised. So, he, you know, again, he wanted to win as much as anybody. Nobody was a better competitor. And he was intense, but never emotional. Different between in intensity and being emotional. He was never emotional. Hmm. So uh, uh, before we decide to slide on to to pass the Damatha time a little bit, I, am I correct that you uh, were recruited by John Moylan, our longtime principal, to coach the golf team at one point? I was, I was, <laughs> and I said, John, I love golf, but I said uh, I don't know how to teach it. And he goes, Well, you know, you'd get out early. And I taught six classes of English a day. He said, Pete, you have to get out early a lot of times. To take the, I said, I didn't even let him finish. I said, I'm in. <laughs> I'm in. Uh, and I love doing it. You know, Ray Smith, legendary golf coach at the mouth, who was so successful yeah. for so many years. May he rest in peace. He was taking a, a year off for there's some family concerns. And and John just got me to do it. So he said, you can't even coach. You're not allowed to coach anyway, which by rules for the WCAC at the time, you couldn't. Uh, you just got to get them there. And I said, well, I can drive a van. Um, we had some great golfers, Del, Del Ponchock and uh, the Wotas. Oh, yeah, yeah we, we were good. Uh, I didn't do anything. I just got them there and they went and played, but it was fun. It was fun. So it, you, uh, you go and you play at, uh, at, at Pitt and then you finish your career there as a starter and a team captain. And then you make your way to Ireland. Uh, 
And just, Pete, fill everybody in a little bit on that story about uh, Neptune Club and how you ended up uh, player coaching in Ireland out of uh, out of college. So I go over as a player and it was low level. You know, I had a good college career and uh, but, you know, I wasn't going to play professionally in the States. And uh, you got an opportunity to go to Ireland. And, and again, in terms of European basketball, you know, Italy's great and Greece is great and Spain is great. And Ireland is not. Uh, particularly when I went there, but it was a real, you know, it was a real virgin territory. Basketball, there was a small group of people involved in it in the state, in, in the country of Ireland, but boy, were they feverish and interested. And in the city, in the club I went to in Cork, um, it was probably the epicenter of basketball in Ireland. And it was a great time to be involved in basketball there. It was just, they they were craving instruction. I mean, Mark, they didn't have any instruction there. They would pass around you know, our Street and Smith magazines, which would just highlight the upcoming basketball season, you know, the players that were going to play for the various teams. There was no instruction in those books, but there might be a paragraph or two and every 14th or 15th page, it would talk about some offensive. They would pass around these books like they were the Holy Grail. Oh my God, look at this. And so they were starving for basketball instruction. And having played for Morgan and even at Pitt, I would coach a summer league team and run, help him run his camp every year. I, you know, I was pretty well versed in the game and they were dying to get what I had. So I felt so valued, so appreciated. I was still loving to play. I was still playing and, you know, low level professional, but I was being played to play basketball, being, being paid to play basketball. So it was, it was a glorious time for me, you know, 23 years old, you know, in an English speaking country. Well, it took me about a week to figure that out, but <laughs> yeah, eventually I got a, I got an ear for the Irish language. Um, and it was just great. And, you know, about a month in, the, our coach was the girls coach prior and the girls were clamoring for him to come back. They kind of sensed I knew the game. They said, would you be a player coach? And I said, they said, well, fly your mother over, you know, for a week. And I said, yeah, yeah, sure. I should have bargained for more. But, um, uh, yeah, it was great. So I became, you know, that really grew me up as a coach, Mark. I was 23 years old and the average age of my team, it was a professional team in Ireland. The average age of my team was 29. So that was a challenge. You know, you're not only coaching peers, but, you know, coaching guys older than you and skeptical to a degree. It was helpful that I was still a very good player relative to them. That helped. But, um, God, I grew up as a coach because I realized, uh, you know, you respect me. I was going to respect these guys. They were my elders. I was taught the right way. Um, And, um, you know, it really just taught me to communicate well and clearly and don't waste their time and all the things I really had ingested from Morgan, you know, as a player and helping him with summer league. I, you know, I kind of knew all those things. I was lucky. I knew all those things intuitively. Hmm. So, and, and Pete, when you were, you know, you were a young guy coaching, maybe first uh, real coaching gig there. And, you know, it's interesting to look back, even for me in the past, say, nine years, and I, there's some lessons I gave nine years ago that I kind of wish I could go back in time and give them their money back. Yeah. Like, how has your your coaching changed? And there are there things you you remember teaching then that you look back and say, you know, what the hell was I doing? Uh, you know, boy, I wish I hadn't done it that way. Uh, is there anything you look back on that way? A lot, a lot, Mark. Yeah, I mean, what I had as a young coach and the JV coach at Dematha, for example, when I returned from Ireland, was great enthusiasm. Still a great, always had a great heart for the kids I coached. None of that changed, but. And really, my technical knowledge improved a little bit um, over the years. But I had a lot of it early because, again, I had the benefit of playing for Morgan. But it was really the early years of just 
game management and get my emotions under control. I was just a young, fiery guy, and I thought that was kind of the way to go. Or I didn't even give much thought of it. I just I didn't didn't control my emotions as well as I could have as a young coach. And when I did, as I progressed in coaching, those games and those times, I was at my best. But it still never really it was it was always a little bit of Achilles' heel for me. Uh, you know, I, I took it as a, you know, it's one of my strengths that I am an emotional guy, but your players don't need to see that emotion. They need a calm hand on the sidelines. And uh, my mistakes, I think, over the years, Mark, would have been just being a little bit too emotional, reacting to officials, for example, or overreacting to a player, you know, uh, player's mistakes. And, you know, I, to the degree that I handled that was the degree that I was a good coach. Um but, yeah, the technical advances I made were minuscule because, again, I had a great coach early and learned a lot of it early. And luckily, I always did have the care. You know, I always say, you know, coaching-wise, you know, they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And I always cared about our players. So they forgave me some mistakes, which was, <laughs> good, which was good, which was good. Talk to me about the the dynamic of – uh, I, I recently had a friend of mine who's the head coach of the Minnesota Wild in the NHL, Dean Emerson, on, and I asked him this question, Pete. And I, I'm interested in your take on the difference between handling and handling players on a team, and having to say one thing to one player and say something different to another to try and find the right fit or key, so to speak, to get them to, you know, produce in the way that works best for them. And I find that to be one of the biggest challenges and also an interesting part of coaching. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, so back to Morgan, of course, you know, Morgan said it best. He says, you got to treat them all fair, but you probably won't, you're probably not going to treat them all the same. Hmm. Uh, because what Mark Russo needs is probably going to be a little bit different in terms of getting you to be your best self uh, than what Pete Strickland might need. Um, you know, the old guy might need a pat in the back. Another guy might meet, need a kick in the rear. So that's the general statement that we've all heard. But it's so true. Um, you know, and a lot of that, again, comes from the great, really the great piece of leadership, Mark, is you have to be watching and you have to be really tuned into your players. So you know what to say, you know, and um, what I'm going to say to you is going to be particular to how you're performing. What I'm going to say to, you know, Joey Smith is going to be particular to how he's performing. And, you know, kids are always going to hear you talking to another player and sense that uh, he's not being. But, you know, that's not an issue because when you deal with them, you're going to be, again, reacting to how and what they're doing well and what they're doing poorly. One of the things, you know, Morgan would always emphasize is, you know, you have to get those points across, you know, relative to your individual player. And you have to be paying attention to them to know what to say. An old acting teacher of mine, and I was an acting major in college and in graduate mm -hmm. school said, with every breath comes a thought, you know, and you see people are nervous on the sideline or nervous coaching kids, you just got to breathe and watch. And then you'll know what to say. You really know what to say. Particularly, Mark, you're a very, you know, I mean, you've developed yourself as a teacher. You know the game. Now you just have to allow yourself the patience to see what you have to say to Jimmy or Johnny or Joni, you know, as you're watching their swing, as you're watching them address the game. Um, and you'll know, you'll know the answer. You, again, with every breath comes a thought. And Morgan always had the poise to be able to do that. But back to it's it's so incredibly important that you tune in um, to know what to say. And talking about players, Pete, I mean, I think, I, and I certainly um, uh, 
I think it's interesting when I coach high school age players versus adults and the ability to self-evaluate and honestly assess where they are uh, has a tendency to be maybe a little bit more difficult for some of my high school kids. Everything is sort of sunshine and rainbows. And then I, I get the scorecard and then, I, you know, I, we got to kind of walk through it. And then with some of my adults too, we got to get them to really take a look at it. I mean, how important do you think it is for players to be able to be somewhat self-critical and be able to self-evaluate so that they can figure out what they have to do next to get better? I mean, integral, integral. If you, you know, if you don't think you're doing anything wrong, how can you improve? You know, that's so that's critical for you to be willing to accept and have the security of self to be willing to accept that, you know, you have you've got room to grow. I mean, um, the the last person you ever want to speak with is a guy that's got all the answers. And because he he doesn't need, he doesn't need to learn anything more. So you have to, you know, you have to be humble. They say there's two kind of people, right, Marcus? There's people that are humble and people that people that will be. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. So you have to know that you need you have, you know, ways to go. And I think the great ones are always striving for perfection, you know, always striving to get better, not in a detrimental way where they're not accepting any progress, but in a way which, you know, how, how can I get better? And and, you know, they, they crave instruction. The great ones, I've worked with NBA guys, I've never coached in the NBA, but coached at the highest level in college, of course, but never coached in the NBA, but I've coached and taught NBA players, whether it be in the summer, or guys that were emerging NBAers or what have you. They crave instruction. Mm. They, cra- they they lean on, once they sense that I know the game, they they listen to the my commas, my semicolons. They want to get better. You know, they, that's the great ones. That's what, you know, I watched Michael Jordan practice in the height of his, uh, of his success. And you would have watched him practice. And, and if you came over from Thailand and didn't know his basketball, you'd, you'd say that number 23, is he trying to make the team? Hmm. Because he was always trying to be that much wow. better. Always, always working on every part of his game. So you, you mentioned coaching at, at the highest level in the NCAA and college basketball. And, you know, you uh, worked through the ranks and then became a, a head coach at Coastal Carolina, winning the, the Big South Coach of the Year in 2000. And, and I'm, uh, I guess to me, when you talk about that, that's a great point about Michael Jordan, because that was one of the questions I really wanted to ask you, too, is how many times have you seen players who had talent and then they get beat by the guy who maybe doesn't have the talent, but simply wants it more. All the time. I mean, all the time. You know, Michael had both. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's a bad example because he had both. Um, <laughs> but generally, Mark, that's what you see is the guy that just has that want to more. And I talk about it with some of the speaking that I do. You know, there's two players. There's there's Johnny and there's Jason. And everybody knows that Jason, let's say he's a 15-year-old. Everybody knows that Jason's better Um, for whatever reason. Let's say basketball. He's got an older brother that taught him the ropes. He's just got a little bit more talent at 15, God given, whatever it is. Jason's better than Johnny. But every time you ask Jason to do something, this gets to your question about how do you react to, you know, failure and how you get better. Every time you ask Jason to do something, it is a basketball example. He doesn't do it right away and he doesn't really do it the way he asked him to do it. But every time he asked Johnny to do it, he does it right away, and he does it to the best of his ability the way you asked. But Jason's still better, and he's still playing. 
and in front of Johnny. But this goes on. And again, every time he asks Jason to do something, he doesn't do it right away. And he doesn't do it the way he asks him to do it. Sometimes it's a parent in the way telling him, you know, that coach is a nincompoop. But then you ask Johnny to do it and he does it right away. And he does it the way you ask him to it, you know, to the best of his ability. Well, pretty soon Johnny starts. Mm-hmm. And everybody in the country, everybody in the community knows that Jason's better. And you and your staff know that he's better. But Johnny's better. But Johnny's better just because, again, for those very intangible things that we just talked about. He's, he's ready to work. He does the best he can at every every possible time. And this, you know, you know, un, unfulfilled potential is a cliche, but it's all the time. It happens all the time. So, you know, those intangibles that Jordan had, thank God, uh, and we saw the convergence of both talent and intangibles. But those more ex- often examples, those kids that just bust their tail and do it to the best of their ability, want to learn, know they got know they got further to go, they get better. Mm-hmm. You uh, you get to a head coaching position in college basketball, and this this sets up a question I ask of almost every guest I have, and that's about risk, Pete. Okay, coaching is a um, is a rewarding profession it's also a risky one at some points are you how much risk are you willing to take you know when you you took over as head coach i mean how much risk are you willing to take and is that are you is it necessary to be a a risk taker to be successful or can you be as successful as you possibly could be if you're a bit risk averse i I, even probably i think there's probably you can probably um skin a cat both ways mark i think um I do think we all to really, you know, you know, fly where they say to, um, to go out in the ocean, you got to let go of the shore. Um, you know, at some point we have to let go of what's comfortable and, you know, take on, you know, take on a, a new challenge and that that's going to be new ground. That's paving new territory so there is going to have to be some risk and challenge and yeah. So you're calling it risk. I'd call it, a, you know, taking on a challenge, you know, striving for that next level. So I think that, so I guess I would maybe amend my first part of the answer. I'd say you, you're going to have to do that. You're going to, you know, you're going to, I remember I had a, a staff, Ted Jeffries, who was the DeMatha grant was on my staff and a guy named Scott McClary. And it was probably the best staff I had. And we would go into coaches meetings after practice and they would have all these unbelievable observations. And I was jealous in a good way. They were making our team better. But I was like, how am I not seeing that? And Scott McClary said, well, coach, how could you see that? I said, what do you mean? He said, you're denying the post on every drill. You're changing our drills at 334, going to 346. Um, you know, you're a whirlwind. You're a, a tornado. How could you see anything? And almost immediately, Mark, I was able to say, oh, my gosh, yeah, you're right. And as a head coach, I needed to see the bigger picture. I really did. I needed to see what Scott and Ted were telling me about practice. So because they were so good, I was almost immediately able to disassociate myself from the the details of practice, give them to Scott and Ted, and then I was watching. And guess who had all those intelligent observations after practice? I did. But I had to let go of the shore, back to your original question, and I had to not be so – hands-on for practice and accept the risk that I'm not really that not hands-on guy 
but it made me a better coach because I needed to see in the bigger picture that I wasn't seeing. Because the decisions I had to make for playing time on game night, I had to have the knowledge that Scott and Ted were getting by just watching me run practice and do everything. But again, it took me getting away from an old habit and mm-hmm. accepting that I had to change. And that's important. So growing as a coach there for you, that was, Absolutely. That was something that happened and you had been coaching for, you know, how long now? And, and you grew in that moment there. That's, yeah. that's pretty interesting. Yeah. Uh, you talked earlier too about, about listening, Pete, about listening being a really important part of coaching. Um, how often do you, or were you in your head coaching and assistant coaching time, you know, getting your players in front of you and sort of listening to what they had to say. I find it, you know, helpful when my students come in, especially my long-term students to just sit there and be quiet for a minute and let them sort of empty the cup is the saying we sometimes use and just get it out. And so I understand where they are emotionally, mentally, and with their game in general. How often did you do that with your players? Well, not enough, but when I was at my best, I did it well. Because you have to, and, and I'm talking about listening with your eyes as much as your ears. You have to see, and Morgan was a great observer of people. So back to a point we, we talked about earlier, when he would say something, it was well-informed. Mm. It was well-informed. And you'd always go, God, Morgan, Mike Bray and I remember when we were working with him as assistants, we'd walk away and say, God, he hit the right note again, again. Mm. But again, he was listening with his eyes and his ears and you know, not so much uh, did I ever, I mean, I did at times where you said, guys, I'm, I'm just missing this. Tell me what's going on. Uh, it was more than when they wanted to talk or I'd see the inclination, I'd say, you know, because sometimes artificially you'll say, hey, I want to hear from you. Like, they make stuff up and like we all might do. But when they would start to want to contribute, as I'd say, yeah, yeah. What, what do you got to say there, Clint? You know, what's the word? Uh, and, you know, there were times that when I was at my best as a coach, I didn't do it when I wasn't. Where I, at timeouts, I'd say, guys, what are you seeing here? What are you seeing here? We're getting beat on that back door. Is it, we, you know, I've been telling you more ball pressure and we're not getting it. But, and they'd often have an, you know, they'd often have an answer that would be, they're out there in the middle of the, you know, of the, the fray. And they, they would have an answer that if I didn't incorporate 100%, it would help inform a decision that I would make that would be better than the one I was going to make. So it was still going to be run by me. But, yeah, you've got to be tuned in to your players. And um, they'll tell you a lot, even by what they just do, if you're really watching. So would you call that uh, giving them ownership to some degree, Pete? Giving them, I'm sorry? Would you call that giving them uh, ownership, so to speak, of uh, of the of the team a little bit? Absolutely. Because every team's different, you know, and it's usually the seniors team and they dictate it unless you have a real strong, you know, junior leadership uh, group or junior leader, um, speaking of basketball particularly. But, yeah, it's um, it's going to be it's going to be their team. You're going to have another team the next year and another one the next year and another. But this is their team and unique in their makeup. Even if you had everybody back a second year, they're all year older, different affects, different things have happened to them. It's, it's a whole new team and a whole new year. So that team is unique. That's the fun part about coaching. It's, it's, you know, it's all reading, you know, you can't go, well, if A, then B, um, you know, and leadership isn't like that. It really is dependent upon understanding the group you have in front of you. 
you move on uh, as you go along and you talk about, you know, really doing some coaching. You you head back to Ireland uh, to take over the Irish uh, national team and the program there at a particularly low point, I guess, in their in their program. Talk to me about how that came about and how you were able to sort of build things uh, and get the program back to uh, to respectability. Well, so um they had just struggled in fairness financially to a degree and hadn't had a team for a few years, but um, they had also struggled from, you know, maybe just consistency at the leadership position. And um, I, I had, you know, since I'd played there in the early eighties, they had, you know, friends of mine had grown and then become, you know, real voices in the leadership of Irish basketball. And they'd asked me a few times, Hey, you think you'd be interested in coaching? So, um, you know, since I had played there, Mark, in the 80, early 80s, you know, my friends had grown to positions of influence and uh, leadership in Irish basketball. They stopped their playing careers, too. And they'd said, hey, why don't you coach the Irish team? And, you know, I never really could because the NCAA rules. And even if it wasn't the rules, as the rules relaxed, I, I still couldn't do it time-wise. But so when I got out of, you know, coaching the NCAA, it was an ideal time to do it. So, um, you know, it was it was perfect. I, it was it was a perfect cherry on top for me, uh, coaching wise. I really was ready to coach coaches, and uh, my last swing was with the Irish team. So, coached some of my great friends' sons on mm, the team, very and cool. you know we, we we you know we were able to train consistently. That was uh, something that you know the the Irish basketball committed to, and that was great. So that made us better. Um, you know, were able to keep some of the better players around to play for me. Um, you know, the being an American coach helped. You know, just. Uh, because it comes with that little bit of a bully pulpit in Ireland. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we, we won a bronze medal, first medal they'd won in 25 years. So um, in the FIBA Small Nations Tournament. So they don't compete in the bigger tournaments. You have to move up. And they had not had a national team for a couple different rotations. And so, you know, we would have to win the, the gold in the FIBA Small Nations and then to move up to the next level of the, of the European championships. But, you know, the process has been started. I could only do it for a two-year rotation, time being what it was, and cost for them being what it was. It was expensive to have me over. Um, I worked very, very cheaply, but just to travel. Yeah. Uh, I would go over for 10 di- days at a time and have to return to do my work here um, in America. But what a great experience. And, uh, you know, it was, you know it, was just, it was just a lot of fun. And a great, beautiful country, obviously, and some great friends. So, um, enjoyed the, and, you know, got better as a coach because got exposed to the European style basketball, which is, you know, really exposed to it. I'd seen European players come here to America. I'd recruited many and signed and coached many, but that's like being immersed in the game and being in Luxembourg and being in San Marino and being in Italy and Belgium and, and playing teams from all those places. That, that was uh, so instructive for me. So became a better coach uh, out of it to boot. Pete, what is it that you love about coaching? And coaching people. Well, it's you know I you know it's cliched, but I love working with kids. You know, uh, love seeing them get better. Uh, love having the right answers for them. You know, because I was blessed to have Morgan, such a great teacher, and mm. maybe the best teacher of the game ever. Um, you know, I have a re, I have a well, a, a deep spring of 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 information that I've stolen a hundred percent from Morgan. <laughs> so I got something to offer. So you know, whenever you're valued, and I found this in my experience when I first went over to Ireland as a player and we talked about it earlier whenever you're valued you feel great you feel great and it was you know I've just always felt like it was just fun to impart the wisdom that I got from Morgan 
you know, to young people and see them improve. You see guys improve. It's so exciting. So that was one thing that really appealed to me. I always loved the game, you know, loved playing it, loved the, the teammate nature of it, um, the, the come together nature of it, you know, never individual sports, um, you know, never, you know, caught, caught my fancy as much as being able to make plays for other guys. You know, I, I love playing golf with people. You know, that's the thing I love about golf. You know, I like the individual challenge. I do love that. Uh, but I, you know, the, let's face it, I, you know, the, the value for me now is playing with friends. It's just such a beautiful sport for that. So that camaraderie that was always a part of basketball and, uh, you know, coming together, um, that's huge for me. and has always been a part of my DNA for whatever reason. So that appealed to me about the sport as well. And, and you mentioned improving, Pete, and I think this one is really for for everyone, but especially, you know, my my students and and those who want to get better. What's just give me some general advice for somebody in whatever sport or endeavor who's trying to improve, you know, what, what advice would you give somebody who wants to get better at anything? You got to work at it on your own. You're only getting so much better when you're in front of Mark Russo and, you know, then you got to go work on your own. You know, you have to put that time in. You only, you're only going to distance yourself and improve if you put time in outside, because everybody takes lessons. Everybody takes lessons. Everybody is on the golf team. You know, everybody, you have to go and work on your own. You have to discipline the hours in your day. And Morgan used to say it every day, you either get better or you get worse. There's no standing still. And, you know, whether it's just a little bit of putting on the carpet or what have you in basketball, maybe in basketball, it was for me, who was a hard driver. Maybe the way I got better that day was actually took a day off. Because I was such a hard driver, I needed to take a day off because those other six days of the week, I was getting after it to become the best basketball player I could be. But you have to spend time on your own. And in doing that, you know, you, you know, you have to listen to your body as you're working through whatever it is and be tuned in. You know, don't be don't do distracted work. Do focused, intentional work. Uh, Morgan was a great one for, you know, so many of the bad coaches in my game and I do a lot of observing of coaches. I do radio and TV for basketball. I, I consult for X amount of basketball programs still in college. The bad coaches, Mark, they go three hours and get nothing done. Morgan would come in and say, gentlemen, today we're going to go short, but strong. Mm. And we said, and he'd always tell us how long we're going to go. They, and maybe it was a February Wednesday practice after playing a big rival on a Tuesday night. Tell us we're going to go 45 minutes today. We're going to get a lot done. And we would. He would fill that 45 minutes up with all sorts of content. But it was focused, intelligent, intense practice. Didn't waste any time. We still had time to get out of there and go do our homework, maybe watch a TV show or two. (laughs) Uh, He didn't waste our time. And all the great ones, all the great coaches, they utilize every second uh, for their team's betterment, just like the individuals would do during their summer work when players are made. Players are made in the summer. So your off season is just as important, but you got to be, it's got to be intelligent, intentional practice. But that's where they got to be here in Mark Russ, Russo's, you know, instruction so that they're practicing smart. Yeah. Oh, that's gold. That's perfect. So now, you know, uh, you're at St. John's Academy and you're also do uh, motivational speaking. Just uh, yes. fill us in a little bit. I mean, how, how long have you been doing that? And, um, you know, how often are you you doing that? In normal times, obviously, not with the stuff going on here in 2020, but, you know, in normal times. Right. So when I got out of coaching formally before I took on the Irish job, but that was 2013. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, 
Um, so I really kicked it in then, um, you know, kind of set up the structure for, you know, financial peace and, and um, some other advice from people that had been doing it for years. But I kind of had the content, you know, I, I listened to Morgan so well at his bended knee and, um, you know, always felt comfortable speaking in front of folks. So that that helped, um, you know, with my acting background, my trained acting background, that helped. And I kind of just put it all together and it was ready. I was ready. I wouldn't regret a second of my coaching career, but God, I really was ready to, um, you know, kind of try to, you know, pass the word on of all the things I'd learned as a, a gray haired, bald headed coach <laughs> and was really anxious to do it. And, you know, why I still had the energy to do it and I do and still do. Um, so that kicked in right away. And so I've been doing about six years now and I'll, you know, I'll go, you know, mostly east of the Mississippi and, I'll speak to groups of 20 to 40 to, you know, I've addressed 350 people in, in a keynote, you know, in front of a, a large crowd and, you know, brand names like UGG, you know, you know, UGG the boot, um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Voith uh, the paper company, um, uh, Estes, the trucking company you see all this all the time yeah. uh, and ad infinitum, right, right on through, but different corporate accounts uh, where folks want me to come in on a regular basis uh, where I advise uh, I, a couple of CEOs I advise on a regular basis still, um, even through COVID. Um, you know, we miss being face to face, but it's still effective that way. But again, I kind of a thief. A lot of it's just stuff I learned from a very good coach and a great man in Morgan. But it applies. You know, Mark, it applies. But it's been a great second career and I've really enjoyed every second of it. So if you can give, uh, you know, a anyone out there who's listening, one piece of advice for speaking in front of other people, uh, because you've done it on different levels and, and in many different uh, ways, what would you tell them? Well, nothing like preparation. You know, you know you're, we're, mm. we're all going to be nervous, but, you know, if you're prepared, you're still going to hit on most notes. Um, you know, and, and, you know, if you can get away from the page, the more preparation you need to do that, because I'm older and I've done a lot, I can probably get away from the written page quicker than most. But, um, but you know, if you need to be on the page, you need to be on the page. But you understand in order to engage folks, you've got to be able to look them in the eye mm -hmm. and be willing to for it to be interactive. I think that's people, want, you know, none of us want to be lectured at. So if you can make what you do interactive and be confident enough and secure enough to do that, that's great, too. But. Short answer, Mark, preparation, prepare your, just like Morgan, prepare your plan and then practice your plan, you know, uh, and he would prepare practice perfectly. He would never follow it hundred percent, but he'd prepare practice and then he would practice his plan. Um, so that preparation is the key. Perfect. Well, Pete, listen, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to, uh, to join me. Uh, always great to, uh, to get you going and, and get you fired up. Uh, and look, I wish you and your family the best. Uh, we'll, uh, we're going to get you on the lesson tee and get this golf game straightened out too. Okay. We, we yeah, my, my kids are treating me. Yeah. My kids are treating me. So yeah, <laughs> let's go. All uh, right. Great. Well, I'll catch up to you off air, but thanks Mark. This has been great catching up and uh, yeah, I hope I, I, you know, well through Morgan, of course, I, you always have to acknowledge his, his hand in it all. And uh, I hope we've I hope left the, your listeners with something to really consider and get after. Absolutely. Pete. Well, Pete, thanks again. And we'll, uh, we'll talk to you soon, buddy. That's great. Thanks, Mark. Thank you.
Well, I want to thank Pete Strickland for joining me and sharing his wealth of knowledge in a career in teaching and coaching. I think if you're a player, what you want to learn from Coach Strickland is you've got to do the work on your own. Be prepared, work hard, and as he said, the work is done in the summer. And if you're a coach, well, I think you want to learn that the best lesson is to tune into your players so you can get them engaged and give them the best chance to succeed. Well, thanks again to Coach Strickland. I hope you enjoyed it. And until I see you next time on the Driving Improvement Podcast with Mark Russo, thanks for listening, and I'll see you on the lesson team.